Hello, welcome back to the Tread Lightly podcast. We are excited to be here with you today. I am co-host and running coach Laura of Laura Norris Running. And I'm co-host and running coach Amanda Brooks of Run to the Finish. So today we're going to talk about all things running gait, but first we do have another listener question. As always, you guys, we are looking for these, so keep them coming. Um, so this is from Emily Athiel on Instagram, and she asked tips for trying gels for the first time. Ooh, that's a good question. I get that a lot from my athletes, and I know there's always the fear of like, what if I try a new gel and it does not go well for my gastrointestinal system? So typically what I recommend for athletes is to try them on a sh- like medium long run, like maybe during a cutback week when you're doing say only eight or nine versus 13 or whatever, or to even try them in an easy run. Like even if you don't technically need a gel in your five mile weekday run, it's a safe scenario to try it because if it goes south, you're not out there for very long. And I always love the baby step idea of if you're really nervous about a gel, starting with like the applesauce pouches, And I feel like you just shared a study about those two. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There was a study that just came out um, in like the European Journal of Applied Physiology. I'll have to check which journal. Um, But it found that applesauce generally sits as well with runners as um, gels do. It looked at half marathon runners and it had them run a half marathon with applesauce and it had them run a half marathon with a glucose fructose product, probably a gel and GI symptoms were the same. And a lot of runners like applesauce also. I think it just tastes better. Yeah. I know Serena Marie, the registered dietitian, I've mentioned her before. She has worked with so many folks with digestive issues and applesauce tends to be like the one they can almost always tolerate. So if you're super nervous, it's like a nice baby step, using it first, getting used to taking in some fuel and then switching over to gels because they are going to have a little bit higher carbohydrate concentration. Um, so I, I still use like applesauce pouches when I'm out on the trails for a long time um, because I just don't want to take a million gels um, and they feel good and they taste good. They do taste good. Yeah. And also I would say for this listener, like there are so many different gels on the market. There are the like isotonic gels that are more liquidy. There's your traditional goos. There's ones like Huma and Spring that use like some more whole food ingredients. Like don't let the first gel you try shade your experience. Try other ones because I've had athletes try certain brands and refer to them as like warm chalk smoothies or snot And I'm like, well, well, let's try a different brand then. Yep. And I know what you're talking about. Um, What's your go-to long run fuel right now? Um, So I've actually been using the Scratch Super High Carb drink. So it's not even a gel. Um, It works really great for me because my GI is a little sensitive and it's just easier for me to take in liquid calories. And my next race is a half and like taking gels in a half can actually be a pain because like you're trying to run fast, your breathing is hard and you're trying to like rip open a stubborn Morden wrapper and shove that whole thing down. What about you? 
Yeah. So lately, I mean, long runs for me have only been getting up to like 12 miles because I'm still focused on the 10K. But when I'm out on the trails for a couple hours or actually even my midweek runs right now that are, you know, 80 or 90 minutes, um, I've got those little Welch's fruit snacks. <laughs> I've been eating those on my week runs. And then during the weekend, I'll have some of that and some of, you know, an applesauce pouch. Um and then I'm just really good about refueling right after too. But for whatever reason, I don't know, I've got a box of those that someone probably sent to me. And so that's, that's what I've been fueling with. And it's roughly the same thing as any of the like sport chews that you get. It's just carbs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I like, like if we ever have gummy bears in the house, I like to use those and it's all seasonal for me. Like, I don't think I'd use the scratch super high carb when not training for a race, like kind of like things like chews and applesauce otherwise. Yeah, I agree. Marathon training, I used a lot of tailwind to get in that extra liquid nutrition. Yeah. All right. So let's turn to our topic of the day. We're going to talk a little about your running gait, but first we have to start with the thing that we see on social media so much and that there are so many questions about, and that is running cadence. Yes. So you probably have heard or read that the ideal running cadence is 180 steps per minute. And steps per minute refers to both feet, so that's 90 steps per minute per foot. Um, but that's not quite the whole story. It's one of those things that someone presented something as an ideal, people ran with it because we like rules and round numbers. Oh, 100%. We love having a specific goal to shoot for. And as runners, we like data and numbers and all these numbers are on our watch. So like you said, our cadence is our stride frequency, the number of steps per minute. So to put that a little more simply, it's the number of times your foot hits the ground per minute while you're running. Um, most of your watches are going to have it on there now for many years, I would calculate it in my head. So if you're trying to kind of do that, and I will still do this sometimes to just check things, um, or when I'm trying to pass time on a run, you can count your footfalls on just one side for 10 seconds. So then you're going to multiply that by two to account for both feet and then multiply that by six to get your total for a minute. And that kind of tells you what your current cadence is. Now, let's talk a little bit more about this perfect cadence number. Yes. So, I mean, the 180 thing came from a study that I believe Jack Daniels did way back in the day where they observed the cadence of professional runners doing a three-kilometer race. And that was the average. And I think there's a few things there. One, professional runners doing a 3K race are going really blazing fast like faster than most of us listening to this podcast can run. Second, it was average, which means that there are statistical outliers on both sides. Um, and then people kind of like ran with this and they're like, this is the best cadence for running fast. This, and then it became, this is the best cadence to reduce your injury risk because the theory is that the slower your cadence, the harder you're hitting the ground and breaking more, and that increases impact, which increases injury risk. But this has been a wildly popular topic for people to study over the past 10 or so years. And we now know that those are all kind of like 
not as easy, simple as it seems. So there was a really interesting 2019 study in the Journal of Applied Physiology that looked at pretty fast runners in a 100-kilometer race, and they found that the average was 183 steps per minute, but the range was 155 to 203. That's a really big range. And they found that there were some factors that affected cadence. So most runners self-selected a cadence that was most efficient for them, and things like height impacted it. Men did tend to have a lower cadence than women, and the researchers theorized it was likely due to height differences between the genders. Um, now, interesting, like age, weight, and experience don't have a huge impact, but like your height does, your mobility does. It's not this universal ideal for every single runner to hit exactly 180. I think this is why I love studies like this that just give us some more information and kind of understanding where did this number even come from. And a lot of the times we talk about cadence because we're often trying to just get you to stop overstriding. And that's kind of one of the big things that cadence can help with is a lot of times when we want to run faster, our natural inclination is, oh, I should stretch my legs out longer. Um, especially those of us that are tall with long legs, that is exactly what I would try to do. Um, but oddly enough, you will notice that a lot of elite runners are shorter and faster, and it's because they aren't trying to stretch their legs out. They're trying to move their legs faster. And so the rest of us can learn from that. Um, picking up our cadence helps us get our feet under our body. And your cadence is going to change depending on what speed you're doing. So sprinters, they might be doing 190, 200. But your easy day, you might be at 160, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I know personally, because I'll kind of watch my cadence, I can run a very similar cadence at a lot of different speeds. <laughs> and that seems confusing to people, but I think it's because I've, like she said, sort of naturally found that, oh, I, on an easy day, even on my 10K days, I might be at like a 175 cadence. And the difference is just how much power I'm putting into the push-off and that my stride length will get a little bit longer because there's a little more power, the knee's coming up a little bit higher, all of those things are kind of happening. So know that it's okay if your cadence is different on an easy day versus a long run. If you are consistently having injuries or struggling to feel like you know you can't get faster or you're not feeling very efficient that's where i start to have you actually think a little bit more about your cadence um, but otherwise on a general basis do you have your athletes think a lot about cadence no i really don't like sometimes if there's struggles with form we think about like quick feet feet landing beneath us which kind of begets cadence but we're not out there like being like, okay, you're at 170 and I want you to go to 174. Like it, it needs to be something that's self-selected for it to be efficient. And once like there is such thing as too fast of a cadence for some people where they're just spinning their feet fast and bobbing up and down and not e aren't efficient. Yeah. I think that's important because we get so many of you that are trying to focus on cadence and Part of the result of that is you get yourself stressed out. And so I keep hearing, well, I increase my cadence, but then my heart rate is way higher. 
Um, and it's because you're running faster. You started running a lot faster. And so the result was you're working a lot harder. Um, so it is a little bit of just playing around with and understanding like where are your feet landing? Are they landing under you on that easy run? Then, you know, maybe it's not something we need to focus on. Like instead we're going to think about your cadence maybe a little more when you're out on your speed work and making sure that the goal of that speed work is a faster foot turnover rather than like we said, striding out. Um, so Hopefully, step one, we've gotten you all to maybe not freak out over your cadence quite so much. Yes. And building off of cadence, and you mentioned this already multiple times throughout the discussion, is stride length. So stride length is literally like how long your stride is when you're in the air. So like you you know, have one foot down, you take off, you're airborne. How far ahead is it until your next foot lands? For elite runners, this can be quite a significant distance. They have very long stride lengths. But importantly, your stride length is going like your legs extending behind you, not your legs reaching in front of you. So like you said, a lot of people think, oh, I'll increase my stride length and they overstride. This is all hip extension going behind you, propelling you forward. And so stride length is a way to increase your speed. Speed is stride length times cadence times power, like you just said. The faster you run, the longer your stride will be, but the more power in that stride. And like I see so many runners be like, this is my straight length on my Garmin, but unless it's a foot pod, I'm kind of hesitant to trust it. What about you? I was just going to ask your thoughts on that because it is one of the stats <laughs> that's now on the Garmin and mm -hmm. on every other watch. And I have had this conversation in my head multiple times of, I don't understand how this watch knows how far back my foot is going. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's estimating based off of arm swing, but then like you look at some runners and their like shoulder mobility is much different than like their hip mobility. So it's just all guesstimating based on algorithms and observations. Yeah. The one I would be a little more inclined to pay attention to would be vertical oscillation. So one of the things you want to make sure you're doing when you're running is not bouncing. And I definitely see this, I think, sometimes when folks are newer to running, there's like a bounce in your step. And I always go back to this idea that if you were running on a treadmill and the ceiling was right above you, your goal is not to hit the head with, not to hit your head in the ceiling. And so to do that, you can't be bouncing. And I think if you think of this as I want all my energy moving forward, I'm wasting energy if I'm going up and down a ton into the air. Yes. And often your your impact forces increase with that, like if you're bouncing instead of propelling forward. And I think like more than cadence, that one could play into injury risk. Yeah, that's a great point. So the next one that we hear a lot about is your foot strike. And is there a perfect one for a while? I was hearing a lot of folks say, I'm really trying to transition to a four foot strike. And this was because everyone became terrified of a heel strike, um, which we'll talk about in a second. But in terms of an quote ideal, I think again, some of this comes down to what happens naturally for you when you're running and not overthinking it a ton, but I don't really want you running up on your toes. And part of that is because then you're overworking your calf muscles 
And so I do see this a lot with people who are like, oh, my calves are always so tight. They're running really far forward on their foot. And your entire foot gives you a lot of power into the ground and gets your ankles involved. So you're taking away some of your power by only landing really far forward. So theoretically, a midfoot strike would be kind of your most ideal for a distance runner. And midfoot means, I always kind of say, right at the back of the ball of your foot into literally the middle of your foot. Um, and that can also sometimes be called a forefoot strike, which is very confusing. Um, I think of forefoot as when you're mostly getting onto your toes. Um, so some folks will sort of think to themselves while they're running, think about like a flat foot, kind of like flexing their foot. If you're trying to break yourself of maybe some things that are causing you injuries or you know, like, gosh, I'm landing really far forward. Um, so that's kind of what I've seen around foot strike. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with all of that. And I think the evidence does too. And I'll be transparent first with our listeners, like kinetics and kinematics were the hardest part of grad school for me, like our crazy physics stuff. So I apologize if I botch some of this discussion for those of you who are more physics inclined. Um, but like a rear foot strike isn't as bad as we've demonized it. The problem is overstriding because your feet are landing in front of your center of gravity, in front of your body, and therefore they're applying a braking force. And a lot of people confuse, like they think rear foot is bad, it's overstriding that's bad. But if your feet are landing beneath your center of gravity, beneath your body, we don't see that rear foot is actually this big bad thing that needs to change. So there was a 2017 study that found that even simple things like the gradient you're running on, the incline, will impact your foot strike. So everyone has their self-selecting foot strike, but it sometimes changes based even on the terrain you're running on. It might change based on your fatigue. And is this like, there's no perfect one because for everyone, all these individual factors going up your kinetic chain impact your foot strike. So 2015 in the Journal of Sports Science and Medicine talked about how it's the range of motion in your ankle, dorsiflexion, so how much your foot can flex when you're landing that impacts foot strike. You also have range of motion in the ankle, or that was in the ankle, in the knees and the hips impacting your foot strike. And a lot of people will try to change their foot strike without addressing their other biomechanics, their other aspects of range of motion, and they actually become less efficient or injured as a result. So a lot of times you don't want to touch your foot strike unless you're carefully guided to by a physical therapist because of an issue you have. That is such a great point. And I think it's really overlooked the power that's in our ankles. So our ankles are like a little spring that help us get off the ground, but we don't really talk about that very much. Most people are just looking at what their foot is doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like for a lot of people, even if they really wanted to like improve their form, if for some reason they weren't happy about their foot strike, we wouldn't just be like, oh, go out and start, you know, landing midfoot. It'd be let's improve that ankle mobility first. Let's improve that ankle strength. Do some plyometrics. It's a holistic approach. Yes. I love that. 
So I feel like the whole heel striking is bad kind of started with the barefoot craze. Um, I know for sure, because I was living in the Miami at the time, all of a sudden everyone was barefoot and wearing five fingers and heel striking was just the devil until they all had shin splints and other things. Um, because immediately they tried to, like you said, massive change in what they were doing without addressing any issues. So that brings me to another one that gets my goat just a little bit. I love our local running stores so much and they try to be so helpful. So most of the time they will have you get on a treadmill and run and they will look at you and they will tell you what kind of shoe you need. The problem with this is that's not a true gait analysis. What that is, is they're looking at just what your feet are doing and everyone pronates, everyone. You are supposed to pronate, your foot is supposed to move that way. Over pronation is when your foot is falling inward too much and that's putting stress on your knees and on your ankles. But when they're watching you and they're only looking at what your feet are doing, they don't know if the reason that your foot is falling inward is because you've got a flat foot or because you have no hip control because you haven't done any hip strength work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, if things like kinetics and kinematics are difficult for someone who went to graduate school for this stuff, or at least related, like it's going to be, it's difficult for everyone. And you know, like people at running stores do great work, but they're not physical therapists. They're not people highly trained in all these fine aspects of the physics of the human body. Yeah, a true gait analysis, because I've had one done because I love this stuff. Someone puts little sensors all over your body, and then you are running on a treadmill while they are videoing you. And while all of these sensors are tracking exactly what your hip is doing, your knee is doing, your shoulder is doing, your ankle is doing, and then they're able to even look at, are you putting more pressure in your right foot or your left foot when you're landing? And so having done that, A, I can tell you, they immediately told me I heel strike, but I land under my body, so we don't care. Um, and same sort of idea. If they had just looked at my feet, they could have said, oh, you need a stability shoe. Instead, they said, it looks like your right glute needs a little bit more strength because it's not quite holding your hip out the way we want it to. So when you're getting that recommendation for a stability shoe, I generally say, unless you've had a bunch of injuries, you're fine with a neutral shoe. And I just need you all to work on your hip glute and core strength anyways. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. I completely agree. Especially then when the athlete gets the stability shoe and they're like, this is so uncomfortable. This hurts to run in. Running shoes should not hurt to run in. They should be comfortable. Yes. I think that's a huge point. And I remember you sharing some information about that previously too, that the shoe that felt good actually did better for the athlete over the long run than whatever was prescribed. Yeah. Yeah. It was a study that I'll link in the show notes, but they found that the, again, circling back to an underlying theme of this conversation, running economy, how you are most efficient, it's the most comfortable shoe. And so if the running store gives you a shoe, that's not the most comfortable, you're probably not going to perform your best in it. Yeah. Have you ever recommended to any of your athletes to get a gait analysis done? 
Yes, I have. For some athletes who have recurring injuries, especially in like certain parts of the body where it's like their IT band is always giving them issue and we've, you know, addressed low hanging fruits, like very basic strength work. Then it's like, I want you to get a gait analysis because sometimes where there is pain is not where the problem is. And so it might be like, oh, they actually have weak adductors. Um, But whenever I have them do a gait analysis, I refer them to see a physical therapist, not just go to a running store. And yes, they're expensive that way. But if you really want a gait analysis, you don't want to just like waste your money on a cheaper one that isn't going to give you useful information. Agree. So a gait analysis is not cheap. I think mine was probably $250. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that is a decent chunk of change to put out. So I don't think it's something that everyone just now needs to go get one done. But I do think if you have had, like you said, a consistent just sort of recurring injuries or even the injury is moving around, Mm -hmm. Um, or if you've just decided like, this is an area that I think is gonna help me get faster. Like I've been doing all these other things and I really just want to invest in it. Um, as, as people who love the data, it's like really, really interesting to see, but I can't tell you that I changed very much from having spent that $250, but I had also spent time prior to that working on landing under my body and things like that. So yeah, I think it's kind of one of those in terms of where your money is going. It can be really useful, but maybe not top priority. Yeah, I agree with that. It's like if you really need it, but it's not something that most runners need. And like I've had I had a virtual gait analysis done once, like it was offered to me in exchange for like a review or something. And it's funny because like even getting the virtual ones that they're not the same, even if it's via PT, they were like, your cadence is really low. And I was like, I'm five foot nine. Of course, it's going to be 175 in an easy run. Like you, you try running <laughs> with like at five foot nine and keeping a 180 while going a 930 pace. Yep. I think that's a good point too, because I get this question a lot from athletes that we coach, which is, can you analyze my gait? And I always say like, you can send us a slow-mo video from like a couple different angles and we can give it like a once over of like, okay, I am seeing that like your right hip is really dropping or your legs are crossing over or you're landing way in front of your body. But a true gait analysis requires someone who really knows how to look at all those data points um, because like your hips dropping from the back, it's not always super obvious until like a really trained eye is looking at it, but it can be very useful once your PT sees that and says, okay, we've really got to work on building up the strength here um, and that kind of thing. So your coach can give you like a high level once over, um, but it's not going to be the same as having, having them look at it. No, no, it's not going to be the same at all. I had to do a gait analysis on myself in grad school and it was like so difficult to really have that fine eye. It was both a gait analysis and like one of those simple exercises of like which muscle is being used at each movement and like which muscles are synergists, which are antagonists. And it was difficult. And it's like you really do want an expert eye there who understands human anatomy. All right. If you had to leave everyone with a final tip around their running gait or foot strike, what would you want it to be? 
Yeah. I want it to be that there is no universal running gait that is perfect for every runner. Uh, There is variance based on many of the factors we talked about. And if there are no issues with your gait, no injuries or stuff, you don't need to change it. Your body is smart and it's self-selecting. And then the other one I would think is a lot of these things actually come down to your forward lean, which is probably a topic for another episode. But like a lot of times it's not just your feet. It's other aspects of running form. But again, don't if it's not broken, don't change it. Yeah, I would say the big one for me is that some of the most boring, repetitive drills are going to give you the most bang for your buck. So if your goal is trying to stop overstriding, one of the drills that I make a lot of my athletes do is march in place. So like you can put two pieces of tape on the ground and you need to be able to march with your feet coming back down on those under your body, your arms swinging forward and back. And once you can do that consistently, then you pick up the pace and run in place a little bit. And again, your knees should be coming up in front of you, not trying to kick your butt when you're running in place for this. And this is the goal of running drills is to create that neural connection from your brain to your feet. So I think we kind of think the drill itself is supposed to just make us faster or whatever it might be, but the drill is creating a pattern so that then when you go and start running, your brain is just used to that's how you land, that's how you run. And so it happens more naturally and that way you don't have to be thinking so hard while you're running. So if you know you're an overstrider, start throwing that drill in. I mean, that one's an easy one. You can literally do it as many days of the week as you want. Um, And just tell yourself that you're trying to get your brain reconditioned to landing under your body. That's a really, really good tip. And you have some good drills on your Instagram page. So where can we find you? Yeah. So you can always find me on Instagram at run to the finish. I'm happy to point you to more drills as well. Um, and definitely make sure you're dropping us a note with your questions. I know they can find you and tons of information on Instagram as well. Yeah. I'm at Laura Norris running. You can also find the podcast at tread lightly running. Um, so find us on Instagram, connect, send us your questions. And thank you as always for listening. We super appreciate all of the reviews you've been leaving so that you're helping other runners to find the podcast. Make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, and Amazon.